Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the opportunity that you've given us this morning to come and to worship in hearing your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to understand. And we pray, God, that you would help us to not only hear what we from your word this morning, what you say from your word, but to obey. Give us the the strength and enable us to obey. And Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning, that you would be glorified in all that we say. And that, Lord, your people would not hear me or see me, but they would hear you and see you. For the glory and praise of our Lord and Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I, I want to quickly say that if I, if I fall dead during this sermon, then you'll be okay because Pastor John has also prepared the same sermon for us this morning. We, we kind of overlapped on our assignment, and so if anything happens to me, he'll just pull me off the stage and continue to preach. Uh, we want to welcome you on this Lord's Day. We are continuing our exposition of the Gospel of John. This morning we are beginning the, the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. And we are now moving into a different phase of this book. This morning I'd like you to take careful note of many of the, the points and information that you'll be receiving this morning. Because they are vital for you understanding the rest of this book. So if you're taking notes, take notes. If you're a good listener, then listen well. The first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John describe the whole ministry of Jesus through the eyes of John the the Apostle as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. The first 11 chapters of this Gospel, they encompass a time span of three years. 11 chapters encompassing three years of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that John did not record every single event that happened within those three years. He only recorded that which the Holy Spirit deemed was necessary. John himself tells us at the very end of this book in John twenty-one twenty-five. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. You ever think about what those many things might have been? Were every one of them to be written, John says, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Imagine. All of the things that Jesus did within that three-year time span, the Apostle John says, if all of those things were to be written down, there would not be enough books in the entire universe to write down all of those events. The first half of this book, again, covers three years of the life of Jesus. Now, the second half of this book, the part that we're beginning today, covers one week of the life of Jesus. Eleven chapters have, have... encompass three years the next 11 chapters will encompass one week the tension between christ and the religious leaders has been escalating from the first 11 chapters from the moment that we see jesus drive the money changers out of the temple in john chapter 2 verse 13 to the final straw jesus raising a man from the dead that had been dead for four days in john chapter 11 The tension has risen to the point that the religious leaders decide that Jesus must be eliminated. But why? 
Pastor John went over this last week, Jesus gained too much notoriety. The raising of Lazarus has now made Jesus, listen, a hero in the eyes of the people. The people believed that Jesus could be the one to lead the people out of the hand of their Roman oppressors. This is why they wave palm branches when they when Jesus arrives in John chapter 12, verse 12. You ever seen the palm branch? The palm branches were a national symbol in Judea. They were used to celebrate when a man by the name of Simon, the Maccabee, listen, drove out Syrian forces from Jerusalem centuries earlier. The palm branch was a symbol of revolution. Jesus riding in on a donkey symbolized they believed their revolutionary was riding in to save them from the Roman oppressors. Jesus was being viewed as the one who could free the people, and he was viewed as a political leader by the people. The Jewish council, known as the Sanhedrin, was afraid that he would be a leader of the rebellion and would cause all the Jewish people to be slaughtered by the Romans who would obviously squash that rebellion. The Romans kept their eyes on the Israelites. They allowed them to have a self-governing lifestyle under the council of the chief priests and Pharisees, again called the Sanhedrin. And they were completely free to live in that kind of way, but they still lived under Roman rule. They were not a sovereign nation, meaning they were not independent. The elders of Israel were held accountable if anything got out of control in Israel. So one of the places that the Romans kept in close eye was on was Judea. Judea was kind of like South Central L.A. You kind of think if there's ever something going on in L.A. that's violent, you probably most likely start thinking of Oscar's hometown, South Central L.A. The Romans knew that if there was any trouble, it was most likely coming from Judea. The Romans knew that from their experience, that if there was any trouble, it would most likely again be coming from Judea. Because why? That's where the revolution of Simon the Maccabee took place. The Sanhedrin decides that the best way to stop an uprising from the popularity that Jesus was gaining was to spread propaganda. A propaganda campaign campaign in order to put to death Jesus so that their position of authority and the rest of the people would be saved. They did not know and the chief high priest did not know that in saying one man dying for the people... That he was actually being used by God to prophesy what was actually going to happen. That one man would die for the people. His chosen people. Although the Sanhedrin believes that they are acting on their own accord, their plans are working on the timetable of the sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, how? I'd like you to think about the events from chapter 11. It's not by accident that Lazarus was sick. It's not by accident even that Lazarus lived in Judea. It's not by accident that Lazarus' sickness led to death. It's not by chance that Jesus, who had just escaped from death in Judea, tells his disciples, let's go back to Judea. It was not by accident that Jesus waited four days to come to Lazarus to heal him, knowing that it would cause a commotion in Judea. Jesus knew that Judea was the place where where rebellions had taken place before, and he knew that it was a place where if a miracle of this magnitude happened... It would cause all the eyes of the Roman Empire to fix their eyes on Judea. It also would cause the Sanhedrin to say, wait a minute, 
Roman is looking this way. Rome's, Rome is looking this way. We must squash this. And the only way to squash it is to kill Jesus. Jesus had this planned all along. It was the perfect plan of God. Now, did God make these people kill Jesus? No. They carried out the plans that were in their sinful hearts. But God was going to use their evil for his good. It was all a part of the plan of God. And it was leading to the final week, this final week that we are now embarking on, on John John chapter 12, the final life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's the setting here? The Passover is at hand. It is the third and final Passover in the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Passover, if you remember, is a celebration of the time when in the Exodus, God passes through the land of Egypt and puts to death all those who do not have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. Those who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost were saved from death. The Passover, for all of my race guys, was a type of the one that was to come. The Passover pointed to the antitype, the fulfillment, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the time has now come for the Lamb of God to to spill his blood and to save people from their sin in this world. This was the eternal plan of God. And it was now beginning to take place on the perfect timetable of God. Do you know that Jesus divides everything? Christ has even divided time. Before him, B.C. After him, A.D. He has divided humanity. People are either for him or they are against him. Jesus divides even destinies. In him, you have eternal life. Apart from him, you will experience eternal judgment. Christ divides families. He divides marriages. He divides friendships. And there is no one else like him that brings about extreme Extremes of devotion and extremes of division. These extremes are love and hate, worship and blasphemy, faith and unbelief, sheep and goats, wheat and tares, children of God, children of the devil. These are great extremes. And John wrote this book to present Christ as the God man, the second person of the Trinity in human form, the promised Messiah who came to conquer sin, death, the grave And our only hope for eternal life. In the first 11 chapters of this book, we are confronted with two extremes. And they seem to be a running theme throughout the first 11 chapters of this book. Every chapter we see belief and unbelief. Believing and unbelieving. Every chapter we are confronted with these two extremes. And both of these reactions are found in this chapter as well. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is so extreme that it results in one having eternal life. And again, believing not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is so extreme that it results in eternal damnation apart from Christ. As we come to this 12th chapter, those two extremes are again being displayed and they are being displayed in, in two people, Mary and Judas In the verses this morning, we will see the worship of Mary, the disdain of Judas and the judgment of Christ. With that said, let's stand for the reading of God's word in John chapter 12. This is the word of God. Give it your attention and give it your respect. John chapter 12, verse number one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. 
where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from, raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table, with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why this ointment? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, the worship of Mary. Verse one, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, from the moment that Jesus was from the moment that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead to this meal that they're having, it may have only been a couple of weeks or it may have only been a couple of days. But whatever the time may be, we do know that we are only six days away from the Passover, which means this. We only have or Jesus only has six days to live. Get that in your minds. Verse two. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. In verse one and two, we see the setting. The time is six days before the Passover. The place is Bethany. The occasion is a dinner. Martha, Mary and Lazarus are holding a dinner in order to honor Jesus, to show their gratitude for the miracle that he performed for their brother. Matthew and Mark both specify that this dinner was held at the house of another person who Jesus healed. Simon, the leper. Simon was obviously no longer a leper or they would not be having this dinner. So present at this dinner is a man who has been dead for four days and another man who was healed of an incurable disease that caused you to be removed from society and even from the temple. Can you imagine sitting at the table there and maybe the conversations that was happening with a man who was dead four days and another man who was healed of, of an incurable disease? So what did he do for you? <laughs> Brought me back from the dead. I was dead four days. How about you? Leprosy everywhere. I would have loved to sit there. Martha is doing what she usually does. She's serving. Lazarus is doing what he probably most often did when, when Jesus came around. Lounging with Jesus. But there's one person that is missing from the beginning there. Mary. And Mary is about to appear in a way that she is accustomed to appearing. And we will learn much from Mary about worship and the way that she presents herself into this story. Verse three, Mary, all of a sudden now she shows up. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. How many of you have heard this story or heard this portion of this passage before? It appears to me that even as I've read it before, that there's a, a sense in which I have passed through this reading without sincerely grasping the weight of what this woman is doing. 
Mary has just done something that appeared to my Western mind as strange. And maybe it's even to your Western mind as being strange. We must remember that the Bible is not a Western book. The United States is not represented in this book. I'm sorry. It is an Eastern book and it must be understood in the context of Eastern mindsets. During that time, when a guest entered your house, it was customary for the host to wash the feet of their guest because Judea, Jerusalem and that Middle East area was very dusty. So the most accommodating thing that you can do for dusty feet is wash them when they enter your home. It was also customary for the host to sprinkle their guest with inexpensive ointments when they entered their home. So in a startling act of devotion and love to Jesus, Mary takes a pound, not a sprinkle, but a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. This was a fragrance that was an oil extract from root and spike of a plant that was found only in Himalayan mountains. Therefore, because of its rarity, it was so valuable. Judas tells us that this perfume was worth a year's wage. And during that time, a year's wage would have been at least $7,000 if you were working hard. Meaning, a person could work day after day, week after week, and after all of that work, only then would they be able to afford such a rare ointment or such a rare perfume. Not only that, uh, but the value of this ointment is raised by the fact that Matthew 26 tells us that it was kept in an alabaster jar. Alabaster is this this kind of white stone that's beautiful and it's very, very expensive. The ointment was usually used for two purposes. Mary would have had this ointment for two purposes. It was used for a woman as a offering gift on the day that she was married to present herself to her husband smelling beautiful with this perfume. And it was also used for the time when a woman or a man was to be buried for their body because bodies were not embalmed them and they then and they would smell after just four days. These are the two purpose, purposes for which this ointment was used. The dinner itself was not spontaneous. The dinner itself was a planned dinner. Therefore, I believe that Mary, what Mary has performed, this act of love and devotion, taking the ointment, placing it on the head of Jesus and that it rolls down to the feet of Jesus was not something spontaneous. But I believe that it was something that was well thought out after prayerful consideration on how she could worship her Lord. Think about this. The result of the time spent thinking about how she could bless the Lord Jesus Christ for the mercy that he had shown to her brother and also how she could honor him as the son of God that he is. She goes to all that she has in her place and she looks at the most expensive, the most valuable thing that she owns and says, this is nothing compared to the value that I have in Christ and says, this is my gift to my king. She breaks it and anoints it on his head and it comes down to his feet. And she is so caught up in love and devotion that she wipes the ointment with her hair. She did not withhold anything from her king. She did not look at him and see what he had done and, and see who he is as having no value. Instead, she saw him as the most valuable thing that is in her life. 
Mary therefore recognized and praised him. And what she had done was she forfeited all of her plans and all of her aspirations in order to worship Christ and be at her feet. And why do I say worship or why do I say forfeit all of her plans? Because what was the ointment used for? Mary might have wanted to get married one day. She might have wanted to, to, to give to her husband the gift of herself smelling beautiful for the very first time. And instead she says, I have no other love and I have no other person that I would rather give this to than to Christ. And I will not put it on myself, I will put it on him. Those were, those aspirations of marriage meant nothing to her. Those aspirations of one day meeting someone that could be better than Christ, there was no other. And the preparations for the day that she might die, it didn't matter. It didn't matter in the face of standing in the one who held death and life in his hands. It does not matter. What mattered to Mary, the only thing that mattered to Mary, was that she was in the presence of her king. And all things were counted as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And for his sake, she lost all things. Mary was, was, even opening, was even opening up herself, listen, to public criticism. How? Because the Bible says that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped her feet with her hair. In the East, women do not show their hair. And in the East, women do not let down their hair. There is only one kind of woman who lets down her hair in public. And Mary was putting herself in, 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 in an opportune place to be criticized like one of those ladies of the night who would let down their hair. But she did not care. She did not care. It did not matter. She was in full worship. She didn't care what people thought. She didn't care about the criticism or even the shock that would have come when people saw her let down her hair, take pins out of her hair. To wipe the feet of her master. Oh, what love and what devotion. And, and Mark tells us that she did not gift wrap this item. She presents it in such a way that it would never be used for anybody else. She breaks the alabaster box jar over his head. As if to say this is not worthy of being used for anybody else but you. Why? Because she recognized who this man was. This is the son of God, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the Christ, the one who is equal to the father, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I break it because it all belongs to you. She may or may not have known. Or she may or may not have known it. But Jesus tells us that what she was doing was in preparation for his own burial. And the Bible says that as a result, the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. When people left that house, they left with the aroma of the perfume that was on Jesus. And many of you know what that's like to leave a house where good food is being cooked. They bring about questions. Where have you been? What are you eating? You smell great. And it may be that the aroma of this house brought about questions from others as they left. Where have you been? With whom have you been? And the only answer that they could give was, I've been with Jesus. 
can people tell that you have been with Jesus? Do you smell of the aroma of Christ? What can we take from this act of worship from Mary? We learn that Mary's action is not prescriptive, but it is descriptive on how God's people should live their lives. Remember, Mary's act was most likely due to prayerful consideration. And the same must be done for our lives when it comes to worshiping God. Worship is is usually not something that happens because of a surge of emotions, but it often involves prayerful preparation. Many times when we worship, is not our worship intentional? And many times when we worship, don't we often have to alert ourselves? I'm going to worship God and set all things aside. Nothing else matters. All my, my social medias will be shut off. My phone will be put aside. My door will be locked. Don't interrupt me. I am prayerfully And thoughtfully considering the moment right now where I just must come to God and worship him. That is the preparation that our hearts must do when it comes to worship. David said in Psalm 57, awake my soul, awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. And that is often what we must do when it comes to worship. Awake my soul. Let us come and worship the Lord. We are so often preoccupied with ourselves and what is happening in our lives and what is what is not happening in our lives that we often must shut all of those happenings off, whether they are happening or not happening and say whatever, no, regardless of what is happening or not happening. I will worship the Lord. We take our eyes off of ourselves and turn our eyes upon him, forsaking all other cares, all other worries of this world to focus on Christ. And his majesty. And when we do. As Alistair Begg says. Things of this world grow dim. In the light of his glory. What is the hour like. Before you come to worship. What is that hour of preparation. Before you come to this place like. Are you running about. Seeking to be prepared on the outside. But failing to acknowledge. That there is an inner preparation of the soul. That must take place. As you prepare yourself to come and worship. Or are you yelling at the wife, yelling at the kids, hurry and get in the car, we've got to go. Or are you spending that time on your way to church prayerful, thoughtful, God, I am coming to worship you. I love one of our brothers sitting in the back and I won't embarrass him. He said to me this morning, I said, you look sharp this morning. He says, I come sometimes better to a Catholic funeral than I do to come and worship my Lord every Sunday. He looks like Sean Connery this morning, James Bond. But what I see in that is thoughtful preparation on how I am coming to worship my king. He did not put on uh, his gym outfit today. He did not put on a jersey and a ball cap. No, there was thoughtful preparation into how can I best worship my king? Oh, what goes into your thought preparation as you come and worship your king. Do not be like those that Christ said in Matthew fifteen eight. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We also learn from worship in this act of worship that worship will never happen. Listen, without brokenness. Worship will never happen without brokenness. Just as the, al- the alabaster jar was broken, so Mary was broken. And what does it mean 
to be broken. I think that Christ sums it up in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And how descriptive this is of the person that is truly broken. They see that their lives are completely empty without Christ. They mourn for the lost. They are the, the meek and the lowly. They are not proud or boastful. They, do, they desire more than anything, that which is upright and that which is true. They are those who show mercy and are pure in heart. And in all things they seek peace and they endure persecution like good soldiers. This, my friends... It's a beautiful description of someone who was broken before God. And only one who has been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit will display such brokenness. It is this kind of heart that was displayed in our sister, Mary. And I pray that it is this kind of heart that you long for. For the Lord to form in you. God, give me that heart. And we will not worship when we are cold in our hearts. We cannot worship when we are cold in our hearts. This is not so much, again, external, but it is a condition of your heart as you come to the master's feet. So what is your heart like when you come to worship? Are you are you resentful? Are you relenting? Are you regretful? Are there things in your life that you are holding against God because he has not done for you yet? Are you coming to him saying, you have given me all that I could have ever asked for? You saved my soul. True worship will bring about transformation. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And listen, and through us, listen, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him ever. For we are an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are the fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. Do people ask you this morning, where have you been? You have the aroma of something other than this world. You have the aroma of something other than what I'm experiencing in this dark and sinful world. What is that that you have? And then there are others who say, please remove yourself from me. Because that which you have is reminding me of the death that is ahead of me. What do you smell of this morning? What fragrance is upon you this morning? The aroma of life? Or the aroma of death. Because Mary had the smell of the ointment on her hair. It could be assumed that she carried that scent with her many days after. And people would have asked, where have you been? And I'm sure she used every single one of those moments to testify, I have been with my king. What is the result of this? Number two, the disdain of Judas. Verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, 
said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to put in, uh, help himself to, to what was put into it. You might imagine, listen now, get the scene again. Mary is doing this with her hair. You might imagine that as she is doing this, there was a complete silence that filled the room along with that fragrance. And all of a sudden, this silence is broken. It is the voice of outrage. It is the voice of objection. It is the voice of selfishness. And it is the voice of one who will soon be controlled by Satan. To go and betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas Iscariot. Notice that the other disciples did not say anything. There was no objection. What Mary had done was perfectly appropriate in their eyes. But not to Judas. There are three facts given about Judas. He's one of the Lord's disciples. He's in charge of the money. And he's going to betray Jesus. The writers of the gospel are so shocked by the act of Judas that every time they refer to his name, they also accompany it with a description, the one who was to betray the Lord. Every single time you see his name, you see with it the betrayer. The most despicable act in all of human history, the betrayal of the one and only innocent man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the words of the Lord are chilling in describing the punishment of that man. He said in Matthew 26, 24, woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. Wow. The reaction of Judas is not surprising. Mary's act caused money to be taken out of his pocket. Mary's act robbed him of an opportunity to rob the money back. He had no care for the poor. He only cared for himself. His heart was filled with evil and greed. And it was evil and greed that caused him to betray our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe that which he had lost through the breaking of the alabaster jar. So maybe the intention of of Judas was to make up for that which he lost by betraying Christ. Isn't it interesting, though, that the Lord Jesus Christ who was in charge of the disciples, who was in charge of commissioning them and giving them responsibilities, gives the responsibility of holding money to Judas. It was almost like, Calvin says, it was almost like Christ was giving Judas his own rope to hold to hang himself on. And hang himself he did. But more than that, Mary's act of devotion contrasted Judas's lack of devotion And therein lies the real outrage of Judas, because Mary was aroma of life and her aroma of life was an aroma of death to him. The selfish person cannot understand the unselfish person. Judas's object Judas objected because he was deceptive. Mary's act highlighted where he really stood with Christ. Let me say that again. Mary's act of devotion and worship It exposed where Judas really stood with Christ. And Judas lived with Christ every single day. He's with Jesus. And how 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 shocking it is that he could live so close to Christ, but yet his heart be so far away. He sees what Mary has done and he is outraged. And we often rebuke those who are expressive and who display a heart of passion because 
We are so reserved and they are so unreserved. We are so impassionate or unpassionate, whatever the word is, passive. And they are so passionate. I, I, I need to apologize to my mother. We were in our house the other day and I was listening to one of our sermons and I can hear my, my beautiful mother's voice say, Amen, Amen, Amen. And I, I remember driving home and I thought there's going to be a time should the Lord tarry in my life and I stay before she does, that I'm going to long to hear her say, Amen, 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 yes, Amen. And my apology comes from me saying, Mom, I can hear only you on the sermons. You're preaching just as much as I am. She said, I'm sorry. I didn't even know. I, w- I couldn't even. How, how does the mic pick it up? It's a mic. It picks up everything. I won't do it anymore. And, and she said, I'm sad. My mom never says that. And I, I, I felt so bad. So you say amen as much as you want. You say yes as much as you want. You say preach it as much as you want. Because that encourages me. And it should encourage you that when truth is spoken, you are just as passionate to say, Amen. Let it be so. Preach truth. Let us never be rejecting those who are expressing their heartfelt compassion and and, and heartfelt truth for what they, they know and acknowledge as being true. Say Amen all day long. If this was a different church, I would not be able to say good morning without you saying amen. I'll take you to the prison one day and you'll see what I mean. Hello. Amen. If it's true worship and not for the sake of drawing attention to yourself, then let that expression of worship be true and worship the Lord. However you do. There are only two responses to Christ. You either love him or you and, and you are devoted to him or you hate him and you absolutely oppose him. Mary and Judas are continuing the pattern that we so often see in the Gospel of John. Belief or unbelief, devotion or rejection, love or hate. Judas rejected Christ and in doing so, his heart became hardened like that of Pharaoh. And his hatred for Christ would be used by God to put to death the perfect lamb of God. The defense of Christ in in closing. Verse 7. Leave her alone. So that she may keep it for my day. For the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have. With you. But you will not always have me. His defense is simple. Leave her alone. She did this. Because it was reserved for me. You will always have the poor. But this is being done for the day of my burial. The Bible says in Matthew and Mark that what she is doing will be told for generations upon generations. And what are we doing here? 2015 years later, speaking about the worship of this woman and her active devotion. It was a rebuke to Judas. What Mary has done was a beautiful act of preparation for his death. And listen, there is no such thing as extravagance. When it comes to worship, Judas's objection was, this is too extravagant. This is too much. This should have been used for the poor. And Jesus is saying, I am God in the flesh. Nothing is too extravagant for the one who called the earth into existence and causes that world to split, to spin and float in air. 
There is nothing that is too extravagant for our God. What would be wrong would be to take what is rightfully God's and give it to the poor who will always be with us. Drive by Martin Luther King Park one day. And if you feel sorry for them, they're probably eating better than you are. If you feel sorry for their condition, they might have more clothes than you do. They will always be there. And if we go on missions for social gospels that say, I'm going to feed and clothe. Well, then good luck. And I don't believe in luck. Godspeed. Because there will never, as long as this world endures, there will never be an ending to poor. There will never be an ending to hunger. There will never be an ending to poverty. What you take to the poor, what you take to the impoverished is the gospel. Because their impoverishment will end one day, but their soul will not. And what is more important, giving them the gospel that will last forever or giving them a meal that will last for a day? Give them the gospel, call them to repent, just as you would call those in the marketplace who look good on the outside to repent. You call those at Martin Luther King Park who don't look good on the outside to repent because both from the marketplace and those at Martin Luther King Park are in need of the same savior and are in need of the same forgiveness of their sins that both of them have. We call them to repent and place their faith in Christ. She couldn't meet the needs of the poor. She did what she could and she worshiped the Lord. How long has it been since you've been on your knees before Jesus in this manner? What was what we express publicly is a result of what is being done privately. What we express publicly in worship is often the result of what is being done privately in worship. How long has it been since you shut everything off and intentionally spent time worshiping the Lord? How long has it been since you came to church, not because you wanted to make sure that God saw that you were here and you got your spiritual check mark, or that the fellow members of the church saw that you were here and they wouldn't call you or text you and bother you that, hey, where were you? But how long has it been since you intentionally came to worship the Lord and worship him you did? How long has it been since you recognized the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the glory of the life, death and resurrection of Christ and that he has called you to repentance and has graciously given you faith to believe and called you up from the grave and by faith and grace you came. And how long has it been since you, with the mindset of what I just said, the gospel, worshiped Christ because of that? Not because you had to be here, but you worshiped him because he, you are a product of the gospel and you have been known from the foundations of the world and that he called you as Lazarus up from the grave and you came and you had a feast here with him in worship. Take that mindset this morning as you come to the Lord's table. This is the feast. We are coming to honor him, to celebrate him, what he has done by raising us from the dead, what he has done by calling our name in a slew of graves, calling our name 
And we are coming this morning to celebrate this meal with him in light of who he is, what he has accomplished in redemption past, redemption present and redemption future.